0: Hey, Cornwall, we're in this study of Moses this summer, and Moses was the deliverer, the liberator, the one who brought about for people who were enslaved, people who were oppressed, people in bondage, he brought about freedom for them. He brought about their independence. And it's not lost that this weekend, we as a country celebrate our independence, July 4th, 1776, and we celebrate, celebrate that we have freedom and that we have our independence, What's interesting is that 90 years after that, July 4th, 1776, give or take, was June 19th, 1865. Now, two weeks ago, we celebrated this, Juneteenth. It's the date that commemorates the final emancipation of the slaves in the United States. And in that gap between July 4th, 1776, and 90 years later, give or take, June 19th, 1865, was a woman named Harriet Tubman. And maybe you've heard of Harriet Tubman. Maybe you've studied or read about her. Maybe you saw the, the movie last year called Harriet Fantastic Movie. Harriet Tubman herself, an escaped slave, started and was the conductor of the Underground Railroad. And she said about herself as this conductor of this Underground Railroad, I have never run this train off the tracks and I've never lost one of my passengers. And she went on 13 different missions to help bring people out of slavery, to rescue them from their bondage. And she was given the nickname, the Moses of her people. I thought that was so beautiful, that she was the Moses, the deliverer, the liberator, the one that brought independence for her people. Harriet Tubman, is a reflection of the life of Moses. And as we've talked about in the series, Moses is a foreshadowing of the life of Jesus. We've seen it the last two weeks. We'll see it again today. We'll see it throughout this series, series that he is a foreshadowing of that which is fulfilled in Jesus. Again, I'll say this. We are skipping over, or shall I say, passing over, that no... You'll figure that one out later. We're passing over way more information than we're hitting. I've given you some resources over the last couple of weeks, some books to read, including the Bible, but a couple of other resources because there's so much that we're not going to hit. We're going to pass right over. I do want to give you one more resource, and that is this for those of you who are not readers, this one's easy. If you will Google these words, read scripture, Exodus. Google those words, and one of the things that will pop up is a video. It's only six minutes and 33 seconds long. It's from the people of, uh, of the, uh, the Bible Project. We've, I've pointed you their, their direction many times. They do a phenomenal job. And in the Exodus Part 1 video, six minutes, 33 seconds, they cover everything that we have covered up to this point and they even hit some issues that I won't have time to hit today, namely the whole idea of Pharaoh's heart being hardened. Did he harden it? Did God harden it? They, they touch on that. I would highly recommend that you watch that. And if you want to go for bonus round, go to part two, watch where we're going, and then you can even hit Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy if you want. They're a fantastic job, but I don't want to point you that way. Last week, we not only spent time in Exodus, but we also spent time in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, where Stephen retells Moses' story. Today, I want us to start off in Hebrews chapter 11, where the writer of Hebrews recounts not only Moses' story, but commends him for his faith. In Hebrews 11, we start off reading this by faith. Moses, when he had grown up, that's what we talked about last week, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Remember, Moses is an Egyptian name, not a Hebrew name. It means drawn out of the water. He's raised in this home of Pharaoh, but as he grows up, he refuses to be known as her son. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a short time. Now, we read that and we just keep going on. Let me stop and remind you, Moses, this young man, is a male in a position of authority in Egypt where he is, in essence, the law. He's, in, in some ways, above the law. He has every selfish indulgence. He has every hedonistic pleasure, every appetite at his disposal. He could do anything, have anything. He could, he could live the life of a frat boy, a playboy, a narcissistic, dirty old man. He could live it. He could have all the pleasures that this world has to offer, and he forsake that, Forsake. that. He decided to say no to that. All right, goes on and says this. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. So he had the pleasures of Egypt and the treasures of Egypt, and he says no to them because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger, He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Remember last week, the theophany, the visible manifestation of the invisible God. Moses had seen that in the burning bush, the angel of the Lord in the flames that did not consume it. And then it concludes, it says, by faith, he kept the Passover. This is where we're going today. Kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. Let's circle back around to this verse where it says in verse 26, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ, which causes me to pause. This is Moses. This is 1,500 years before Christ. He doesn't know about Christ. The prophets haven't even come along to talk about the the, the Messiah, the anointed one, the coming one. And yet he's a part of God's plan knowing that he's not just bringing about a a page in the story of of uh, Israel's history, which he is, But he is bringing about a chapter in the epic work of God on a cosmic eternal level. But he disregards this for the sake of Christ as greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. The treasures of Egypt. Now I don't know if you noticed, but I have a friend with me here uh, on the platform this weekend. So, I mentioned last week, I've got something for you this week. This is a, a replica of the sarcophagus or a coffin of one of the pharaohs, one of the kings of Egypt. A little bit of a quiz here. You can say this out loud. Which king do you think this represents? Which pharaoh from Egypt do you think this represents? Now, if you said King Tut, two things. One, you're right. Two, That's probably the only answer you had. Maybe Ramses for some of you, and if you've been listening, you might have said Tutmos, but probably forgot that. You might have said um, Hatshepsut, but you probably forgot about her already. We only know about uh, King Tut now. You may be wondering where did I get this. I'm just going to tell you, this was so hard to put in my carry-on luggage when we were coming home from Egypt and to get it through security. But I'll do anything for this church. Now, why is it? Question for you. Why is it? that you even know who King Tutankhamun is? How is it that you are even familiar with the name King Tut? I mean, think about this. He was the boy king. He was nine years old when he became king. He didn't reign like for decades and decades. He was king for only nine years and at 18 he died under cir- suspicious circumstances in that there were some people that probably didn't want him to be king, probably because he didn't do a very good job of it. Could you imagine a nine-year-old kid running a country? An 18-year-old kid, for that matter, running a country. So he reigns for nine years. He's a boy king. Why is it that we know his name? Why is it that we know his name? And most of you have never heard of, um, I can't even remember his name. (laughs) uh, Amenhotep. There you go. Amenhotep III. Amenhotep III is, reigned for more than four times as long as King Tut did. He was, he was a pharaoh for almost 40 years. And not only that, but he was the pharaoh during this pinnacle season of, of Egypt's history. I mean, it was unprecedented prosperity and, and the glorious years, the, the splendor of it all. In fact, he was nicknamed the Magnificent. Almost sounds like a magician. Why is it that you know King Tut, this kid who reigned for, for nine years and not any of the others? There's only really one reason. It's because when the tomb of King Tut was discovered in 1922, it is the only tomb of any of the kings or pharaohs that have been discovered in recent years that was intact. All the others had been looted, had been plundered. Here's a little note to yourself. If when you die you build an enormous pyramid that can be seen for miles around that sends out a neon sign that says buried within my walls are millions and billions of dollars worth of worth just come and get it cuz we don't have security out here at night probably those tombs are going to be looted that's why all the the tombs were looted over the years but king tut's tomb was intact and when they discovered it, there was all of this wealth and all this gold and all these riches. When we were in uh, Egypt, when we were at the Museum of the Egyptian Antiquities, we got to see, as many of you have at, when it's traveled around the United States, we got to see all the treasures and the riches of King Tut. And uh, w- one of the things that's probably the most famous is his mask or his hood. Uh, and a picture from that was taken by someone in our, in our group. It was not allowed to t- I did not take this picture. This picture was taken by someone in our group. I won't tell you who, but his name sounds a lot like Chris Henry. But he takes this picture of the hood or the mask of King Tut and it's made of gold. It's absolutely fantastic. Now what's interesting, and I referenced this on Easter when we talked about the Egyptian burial process and their whole idea of the the Ba and the Ka and the pyramids and the mummification. When Tut was buried, he wasn't just put into a coffin, a sarcophagus. It was like Russian nesting dolls. There were seven or eight of these. He starts off, he's mummified, and then he's put inside a coffin, and then that coffin's put inside another one, and another one, and another one, and another seven or eight times to where it gets enormous. The innermost coffin, um, now, this picture was taken, and, and I didn't know it was illegal until after I took it, I promise you. It was, I mean, the person who took this didn't know it was illegal until after he took it, and it was taken by someone whose sermons rarely go under 40 minutes. This picture is of his innermost coffin, And it's made of 22 karat gold. It weighs 296 pounds. 296 pounds of 22 karat gold. And this is just one piece of this. The reason I tell you all this is you could go on and on about the riches and the wealth of of King Tut. And he was like one of the lesser kings. So when the scripture says that Moses forsook where he took the disgrace of the cause of Christ as more valuable than the treasures of Egypt, you begin to understand what Moses said no to. Not only the pleasures, but the treasures. He could have had wealth untold. He could have had his own pyramid. He could have had his own coffins made out of gold. Instead, he goes on to Mount Nebo. He looks into the promised land. And on Mount Nebo, then there is no Mo. He's done. God takes him. He's in an unmarked, Tomb somewhere, no one even knows where, but he says that was all worth it. Now you might say, wow, Bob, that's cool and interesting. But remember, everything we're talking about is this foreshadowing and it's pointing. See, Moses, Moses is a type of Christ. This word type, it's what we've been talking about, the foreshadowing, it's this this imperfect um, preview It's like the appetizer for the bread of life. That's next week. Come back next week. That's that's next week. It's like he shows what we see in Moses is something that will be fulfilled in Christ. So if we think that, that Moses gave up incredible treasures, pleasures of Egypt for God's purpose, how much more did Jesus do that? In 2 Corinthians, we read, "...for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ." That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Whatever riches and treasures Moses gave up is a pale, pale comparison to what Jesus gave up. The pleasures and treasures of Egypt or the pleasures and treasures of heaven. All of the splendor, all the power, all the majesty, all the glory, all the worship on a cosmic level for all of eternity with the whole world on his throne. And he gives that up. He who was rich became poor. You see, what Moses did is pretty impressive, but it just gives us a glimpse of what Jesus would do. In Philippians chapter two, it says, Jesus, who is very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That he would forsake the pleasures and the treasures of heaven for us. Okay, put a pin in that. We'll come back to that later. We left off last week where Moses is at the burning bush and there he has this encounter with God and God tells him what he's gonna do and he says, oh, and by the way, I'm sending you. Moses asks the question, who am I? God says, it doesn't matter, I'll be with you. He says, well, who are you? That's when he gives him the tetragrammaton, these four letters, Yod, He, Bab, He, Yahweh. I am that I am. Moses pushes back. He says, they won't believe me. God says, get your stick. He says, okay, but I can't talk. He said, I made your tongue. And then he just says, I don't wanna go. It says, get your brother, get your stick, and go. So he does. And he and Aaron come to the people, the the Hebrew children, and they say, hey, look, Moses is back, and he's heard from God, and God has heard your prayers, and he does the stick thing with the snake, and he does the hand with the leprosy, and they're all like, yes, this is amazing. Moses, Moses, Moses. And they said, okay, 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 settle down. There is just one more detail. We gotta go tell Pharaoh about this as well. Okay, good stuff. Moses and his older brother Aaron head into Pharaoh. I'm thinking on their way there, they're saying, okay, let's practice this, let's role play this. All right, so what do you think Pharaoh's gonna say? I think the first thing he's gonna say is, tell me what you want, what you really, really want. What are you gonna say? I'm gonna say, I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. Now, however it happened, Moses probably uses his past to somehow get his way into the presence of Pharaoh. And that's where we pick up Exodus chapter five, verse one, and it says this. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, Yahweh, I am. There it is, all caps, tetragrammaton, Yahweh. The Lord, the God of Israel, these are important things, says, let my people go, so that, remember it wasn't just let them go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. He says, this is what Yahweh says, the, the Lord of Israel. And there's the key of this whole next section of scripture in the, in the chapter in the narrative is found in verse two when Pharaoh's reply, and he says this, who is this I am that I am? that I should obey him and let Israel go. I do not know the I am that I am. I do not know Yahweh, and I will not let Israel go. Basically, he's asking two questions. Who is this God, and why should I obey him? Now, when he says this, he's not speaking as an atheist. It's not that he doesn't believe in God. In fact, he's a polytheist. He's he's got this pantheon of of gods and goddesses in, in Egypt. There was 80, give or take, 80 main gods and goddesses with some sub-deities. I always think that's funny, sub-deities. Are you the almighty? No, I'm the semi-mighty. There were these sub-deities. But but in the 80 um, major gods and goddesses, they were all clustered around three key forces of of Egypt. One was the Nile, which we're going to get to in just a minute. One was the land. And the third was the sun. And the sun god, Ra, was seen as the king of the gods. In fact, Pharaoh was believed to be the incarnation, the personification of the sun god, Ra. So Pharaoh comes along and he says, listen, I've got my gods. In fact, I am one. I am, (laughs) humbly speaking, I am the personification of Ra, the king of gods. Now, you have your god. And that's fine, but I don't know who it is, and you guys are slaves, and I don't know, so why would I even care? Why would I even listen? One little side note, and we'll get to this in three weeks. This is why when God gives the Ten Commandments, the very first one he starts with is, you shall have no other gods before me. Because the Hebrew people for 400 years have had instilled into them, there are many, many gods. And God says, no, 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 there's only one. So he asks this question: who is your God and why should, I, why should I follow him? And where we're going now is the answer. The plague, the plagues answer the question. When these plagues come about that we're going to study, and we're not going to look at all of them because we don't have nearly had enough time, but they answer this question of you wanna know who God is? Let me show you who God is. And they're not just arbitrary calamities that God grasped out of the sky says hey let's, uh, let's do frogs that, that's kind of cool let's do frogs hey, hey, hey let's do boils no 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 every single one of the plagues is a frontal assault on one of the Egyptian gods I, mean, I so wish we had time to go into all of these we're going to look at a couple of them it's a frontal assault on the Egyptian gods and this is where we're going to jump over to chapter 7 uh, where it says this I think it's chapter 7, uh, seven verse 17 This is what the Lord, Yahweh, says. By this, the plagues, you will know that I am the Lord, that I am the God, that that I am the one above all things. You're going to know this, Pharaoh, and and this isn't like God saying, Moses, hold my beer. I mean, he doesn't need anyone to hold anything. He says, listen, I am not inebriated. I am in my right mind. I am God, and I'm going to show you that. You're going to see that. And the first thing he starts off with happens to be the Nile and, and uh and he, he focuses on this one. Goes on, says, With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood, the fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink, the Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. All right, let's just first address the question that some of you are asking, did it really turn into blood or was it just symbolism? To me, it doesn't really matter. Whether it was actual blood, whether it was something that was, had a red tint, it was enough that when Moses records it, it's like it's blood, okay? And the reality is it killed all of the fish and it made it putrefied so much that they could not drink that water. I stated this in the very first week of our series that there is no way, no way that you can overemphasize the importance of the Nile River to Egypt. I mean, the Nile River is 4,000 miles long, 4,000 miles long. Starts down in Uganda, goes through South Sudan, up through Sudan, all the way through Egypt. It cuts through the Sahara Desert. And on one side, it's got the Assyrian Desert to the, to the east and the, the Libyan Desert to the west. I mean, this, this river, is, it, it goes through and it brings water for thousands of miles. And because of that, this river was so important for their transportation. It flowed north. So if you wanted to go to the north, you got on and rode the current to the north. But the prevailing winds came from the north to the south. So if you wanted to go the other direction, you just put up your sails. And you could go north or south on this with very little effort. In addition to that, the water brought about irrigation. It brought about fertile soil. It brought about all that they needed for, for everything. In fact, through Egypt... The majority, even to this day, the majority of people in Egypt live along the Nile. Okay, this is not meant to be a negative slam. It really isn't. Some of you are going to think I'm I'm picking on our friends to the north. That's not the case. It's just simply stating the fact that statistics show that 66% of Canadians live on about 4% of Canada's land, and that 4% of land is within 60 miles of the U.S. border. No judgment there, nothing, I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying the majority of Canada lives along the border. You take that and uh, uh, amplify it even more. In Egypt, 99% of the people live on 1% of the land, and it's this swath that goes right alongside of the Nile, anywhere from 10 to 15 miles wide. Because this river provided everything they needed. It gave them incredibly fertile soil. Every year it would flood its banks and it would lay down a, lay, a new layer of silt, a new layer of fresh uh, dirt. So they never had to give their fields a rest. It was replenished every year. It would irrigate their crops. They could drink this water. They could, they could uh, cook with this water. They could clean with this water. They bathed with this water. This water produced fish. This was so important. The Nile was the source of life for them. So much so that they worshiped the Nile. They worshiped the gods of the Nile. The Nile, (laughs) pun intended, was the lifeblood of Egypt. In fact, one historian said that Egypt is the gift of the Nile. Not the other way around. Not the Nile is the gift of Egypt. Egypt only exists because of the Nile. And God says, let's start there. Let's start with this Nile River. And he brings the plague. And this plague... He says, you're going to know that I'm God. This plague reveals who he is, reveals his glory. This plague would turn water into blood, and that blood, being this judgment, would bring about death, which ultimately would lead to deliverance. Now you might be saying, it's so sticky, what have you, but great story, let's move on. Wait a second. Remember, everything points to Jesus here. Follow this, first plague, water turned into blood, resulting in death, all for the purpose of revealing God's glory and delivering his people. Watch this, Jesus comes along 1,500 years later, first miracle, not plague, first miracle, he turns water not into blood, he turns water into wine, and this wine is like the life of the party, the kingdom. And Jesus comes and he does this miraculous sign to bring about such life and joy and redemption. And in John chapter two, we read this. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Do you see the parallel at all? the first plague God is revealing his glory Pharaoh will not believe in him the first miraculous sign Jesus is revealing his glory and his disciples put their trust and faith in him and it doesn't stop there two chapters later he meets this woman and he says to her I can give you living water living water Living water, though, you'll never thirst again. And I'm getting way ahead of myself. But years later, he would be with his disciples, and he would be at this last supper. The very disciples who saw him turn water into wine. And now he takes the wine, and he says, this wine is my blood. Not the blood like in the Nile that's of death and a curse. This is the blood of life, of forgiveness and life. Okay, I got to stop. Somebody stop me. This is so cool, though. The first plague reveals God's glory. The first miracle reveals Jesus as God. Now, we could go on and on. There are so many plagues that we could look at. We're not going to. I'm going to have to fast forward. We're going to go forward. Let me give you a little bit of information, and you're going to hold on to this because there's going to be a quiz. The ninth plague, the next to last plague, was darkness, and darkness came across the Egyptians, not the Hebrews, which is, I wish I had time to go into that, for three days. So here are the two questions. What was the ninth plague, darkness, and how long did it last? Three days, okay. Log that away. So that's the ninth plague. And then we get to Exodus chapters 11 and 12, and this is the heart of the Exodus story. In fact, this is the heart of the Jewish story. And in essence, this is the heart of the gospel story. All right, Exodus chapter 11 says this Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne. To the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. I want you to notice it's talking about the leader of Egypt, Pharaoh, but he's not talking about just Egyptians, the firstborn son in Egypt, not of Egypt, which meant that even the slave girl, the Hebrew slave girl, her firstborn son, that everyone is under judgment, not just the Egyptians. The Hebrews are as well. But this is the beauty of this story. That when it gets to this final plague, when he says, all of you, all of you are under judgment. God provides a provision for them that will protect them from this. And this is what he says to them. When this happens, I want you to take a lamb. Very specific instructions. A one-year-old lamb. A one-year-old lamb without any defect. And at twilight, I want you to slaughter this lamb. And when you slaughter this lamb, I want you to make sure that none of its bones are broken. And you are gonna use this lamb as a meal, but don't break its bones, and the meal will be completely eaten. There will be no leftovers. You're gonna eat this at a meal. Very specific instructions for what to do. But it wasn't just the provision of a meal. He says, there's something else that is very important for you to do. And this is what he says in in, uh, chapter 12, verse 7. Then they are to take some of the blood from this lamb that they slaughtered at twilight. They didn't break the bones. They are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. So he says, when you slaughter this lamb, take the blood and you put it across the doorpost." You don't have to ask why. You don't have to understand it. It doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to be logical. What I'm asking you to do is be obedient to what I've told you and trust me. Be obedient. There's a sermon right in and of itself right there. To be obedient to what God has called us to, even if it doesn't make sense, and have faith and trust in him. And what he says to them is this. Listen, there is a judgment coming, and everyone is under this judgment, but the lamb is your only hope. A lamb is your only hope. Your only hope is a lamb. Here's this meek, innocent, little, one-year-old lamb up against the destroyer of the firstborn, and yet God uses the weak to shame the strong. He uses that was so illogical, and he uses a lamb, and he says, the lamb is your only hope. Now, when they do this, They're aware of their history, the oral history that's been passed down to them for generations. They know the story, and their minds are probably going back to the story of Abraham. When God said to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac. And Abraham goes to sacrifice the son, and at the last moment, God says, no, 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 I'll provide a ram for you. I'll provide a substitution for your son. Your son's life will be spared because of the life of this animal. And they were aware of that. All right, Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. On that same night, I will pass through, key, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. He says, I'm gonna pass through Egypt, and I'm gonna answer this question again, this question of, I don't know your God, who is your God, why should I? Why should I uh, follow him? Why should I obey him? He says, I'm going to show judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the I am that I am. And Pharaoh, you're going to know. You're going to know who I am. Verse 13, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over. I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. He says, I'm going to pass through and I'm going to strike down the firstborn. But if you have the blood of the lamb, I'm going to pass over. It it could also be translated skip, but it doesn't make such a cool thing to say, we're going to celebrate the skip. It's the Passover. And it all points back to this. This is at the center of of, of the Jewish faith, even to this day, to celebrate the Passover of what happened there. And he says, now, one of two things can happen. I can pass through your house and bring about destruction, judgment, and death, or I can pass over your house. You decide. Now, let's go back to that passage in Hebrews that we started off with because it talked about the faith of Moses. In Hebrews, it says this by faith, he, Moses, kept the Passover. Now it's got a capital P, now it's an official celebration. He kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. So, okay, we just heard that story. Do I have time? Okay, I have time. I want to give you one more little rabbit trail that we went over, that we passed over. It says, the firstborn of Israel, we think, okay, that firstborn son, that firstborn cow, the firstborn of their household, and that's true, but it's more than that. Because when God was telling Moses what he was supposed to say to Pharaoh, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 and 23, we read these words. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go so I will kill your firstborn son. He's not just talking about the individuals. Now he's talking about the people. And he says, this nation which I have chosen started with Abraham. And when he was faithful, willing to sacrifice his first and only son, the son of the covenant, not Ishmael, Isaac. This group of people, Israel, they are my firstborn son. And I've asked you to let them go. And you said, no. So I will kill your firstborn son. All right. Back to Exodus 12, verse 14, it says this. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. So from that day to this day, this is such a huge part of the Jewish tradition to celebrate the Passover. It's something they did year after year, generation after generation. It was to remind them that God had provided a way for them so that death, destruction, and judgment could pass over them. It was something that they knew as this, we use the the theological term, substitutionary atonement. That instead of your life being taken, the life of another party will be taken. That night in Egypt, every house either had a dead lamb or a dead son. They got to choose. But there would be death. And if it was the lamb, the lamb was substituted. Uh, Let me show you a a, a kind of a cool progression we see throughout scripture. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were up to that point, they were naked and they were unafraid. At that point, they recognize they're naked, they're embarrassed, they realize they've sinned. They try to cover up their shame with their sewing the fig leaves together. And it says that God made skins for them to cover their shame. Where do skins come from? Animals. First point of death ever in scripture. He kills these animals To cover their shame. One animal for each of them, probably. When Isaac is getting ready to sacrifice, when Abraham is getting ready to sacrifice Isaac, God substitutes an animal for the son, Isaac. One animal for one person. But when the exodus comes, it seems there's a progression. Because he says, now I want you to take one lamb per household. Not per person, per household. And they did that. And then in Leviticus, when God gave instructions about the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, he says, now I want it to be one animal, not per household, for the nation. You see how this is progressing? And you know where it all points. Where, I mean, it all points to Jesus, right? So there's one per person, one per household, one per nation. And then John the Baptist sees his relative Jesus and he says this. John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, not of one person, not of one household, not of one nation, the sin of the world. That now there is one sacrifice, one lamb, one final giving that would cover over the sin and the shame of the world. It's an amazing thing. So after this original Passover, 1500 and some years later, Jesus is with his disciples, and they are celebrating the Passover just like they've done every year of their life. They grew up in Jewish homes. Every year they would celebrate the Passover. This time they're celebrating with Jesus. Maybe this is the third time they've celebrated it with Jesus. We don't know. But they're celebrating with Jesus, and now he begins to unveil some things that they never saw and I think at the time didn't fully understand. Remember, these are the guys that saw him turn water into wine. These are the guys who heard him say in John, recorded in John six, eat of my flesh. I'm the bread of life. And now he sits down at the Passover with them and he takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body. Now that's either heretical or nonsensical or unbelievably profound and they don't have a clue what it means. He says, this is my body. And then he takes the cup, part of the Passover, had been for years the cup, the wine that looks like blood to remind them of what God had done, not only in the Nile, but with the firstborn son, and the blood of the lamb. And he takes the cup and he says, this is my blood of the new covenant. New covenant, wait, 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 new covenant? This is the blood of my new covenant. And you notice what he doesn't talk about in those discourses at the Last Supper. He never talks about the lamb. He doesn't talk about the lamb on the table because he is the lamb at the table. He's the lamb of God, the final sacrifice that will take away the sins of the world. It's amazing as you look back over this and see how this all works out. In 1 Corinthians we read these words, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. He's our Passover lamb. He's the one who gave it all up. It's his blood that covers us to allow us to be able to have life. So, little quiz. What was the ninth plague? If you said darkness, you're right. How long did it last? If you said three days, you're right. While Jesus is on the cross, scripture tells us that the whole earth became dark. Not for three days, but for three hours. While he's on the cross. And later, he would be in the dark of a tomb for three days. And while he's hanging on the cross, the Lamb of God, the firstborn over all creation, the Son of God, spills his precious blood And when they come out to break his legs, they don't because he's already dead, and to fulfill not only what had happened in the Passover and every year since, to fulfill what was prophesied in in Psalm 34, they did not break his bones, none of his bones were broken as he dies in this dark at twilight, just like when the lambs were to be slain. And at that point, Jesus takes on the plague of sin, of guilt, of shame, of death, and of grave. You know what you begin to see when you understand all this? That what Jesus did, what all of the the Passover and the Exodus was pointing to, what the disciples heard at the Last Supper, it's salvation through judgment. Salvation through judgment. You remember the destroying angel was gonna come through Egypt, but could also pass through Egypt or pass over if they had the lamb. Let me just point this out, that Jesus goes through the judgment for us so that judgment could pass over us and we could have salvation. We could have eternal life. We could be free from the plagues of our guilt. All right. I'm telling you what, I could talk about this all day long. I'm out of time. Let's circle back. Circle back to Tut. Remember what it said about Moses. That Moses would rather have the disgrace of Christ, the the, the cause of Christ. He didn't even fully understand that. And he would forfeit the treasures of Egypt. So Moses is probably thinking, well, I could have had a coffin made out of gold. I could have had a pyramid. I could have had all that. But you know what? To be a part of God's redemptive plan, all that gold and silver, that's nothing. I'd much rather have an unmarked grave on Mount Nebo somewhere. No one's gonna find it. No one's gonna discover it. No one's gonna come and make a museum out of it. But I get to be a part of what God is up to. And all that points to Jesus who Jesus who gave up the pleasures and the treasures of heaven and for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. That Jesus would say, and I'm not gonna have a fancy tomb. In fact, I'm gonna borrow one because I'm gonna leave it empty because I'm gonna conquer the plague of death and the grave and sin and guilt. And I'll do it. Not with the riches of Egypt. In First Peter, we read these words: "For you know that it was not with perishable things, perishable things like silver and gold. Even a 296-pound golden casket was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But, with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect without broken bones, a lamb whose blood would cover over our lives, a lamb whose blood would take away the sins of the world. Not just a person, not just a house, not just a nation, but the world. And Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that we who are poor might become rich and Jesus, who is in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something in the grass. He made himself nothing, took the nature of a servant, be made in human likeness, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, it says, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What an amazing thing. That all of what happens in Exodus points to all of what would happen on the cross and all of it can be redeemed for our purposes. Here's what I want to challenge you with this week. This week, I want to challenge you to go back and read Exodus chapters 11 and 12. To to read it in its entirety. Hopefully you've been reading along, but at least Exodus 11 and 12 to see the Passover, to see this night where this this, uh, plague came. And then, this is what I want you to do, and this might seem a little bit weird, but I want to challenge you in this one. When we were first putting this series together, I thought when we do the Passover, we will share communion together. That if we were gathered together this weekend, we would now be going into a time of the Lord's Supper, the, the Eucharist, communion, And I wanna challenge you, and for some of you, you're gonna be a little bit like, I'm not sure if I can do this, because I'm not a priest or I'm not a pastor. Listen, if you're in Christ, it's the priesthood of all believers. Sometime this week, I want you to spend some time, read through that original Passover, that original uh, night, and then remember what Christ has done for you. And I want you to take communion. It might be by yourself, it might be with a spouse or a friend, it might be with your family, it might be with a, a small gathering, what is, whatever is responsible. But I want you to take communion, to remember that God does this for us. And we get the choice. Does judgment pass through us or pass over us because of the blood of the Lamb?